Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me this week is Allison Wiseman. Allison, how are you this week? I'm doing all right. You know, it was supposed to snow last night, I think, but like it was 53 degrees today, so yeah. I guess it just us completely. So I'm great. <laughs> the snow totally missed us, and it, and I think it was supposed to happen like southeast of us, and it didn't really happen like it was supposed to at all. So, you know. It's so much different than when I was a child when I was like, oh, man, we weren't going to have to go to school. But now it's like, I don't know. Now it's now now the kids got the school on the laptop. That's rough. I don't know. It's yeah, just... they don't have school days like snow days anymore. Um, that week of Martin Luther King Jr. week, my siblings and mom, who's a teacher, did NTI. And so, like, it's not a thing anymore. <laughs> I, know. I know it's brutal. Brutal, brutal for the kids. It's one of the things right. we're going to be talking about today. Um, we have a lot of stuff to talk about, but I did want to mention before we get into all of that that our guest this week is Lindsey Burke. She's a, a Kentucky State representative uh, from Lexington who has been uh, the leader on uh, abortion this year, uh, this year, expanding abortion access, and she's been very forthcoming about her extremely tragic story, which she shared in the second half of the show. So definitely stick around, hear her tell her story, hear her talk about the things that she's doing to try to improve abortion access in Kentucky and learn ways that you can help. I mean, this is an issue, you know, everybody that knows me knows I'm super passionate about. Um, you know, it as uh, Democrats, we're almost all pretty passionate about it because we see the reality of what this looks like and um, we would love to see good things happen. Of course, they probably aren't. We talked about that with our two and how we're going to keep going, how we're going to build a movement to, to improve abortion access in Kentucky. But yeah, check out that interview in the second half of the show. I really enjoyed that conversation, Allison. I thought it was really meaningful. I, I hope that you felt the same way. I did, and it just makes me sad that we have to rely on people like Representative Burke or Hadley from last year, just have to retell their stories so many times and knowing that there are still people out there who just aren't going to be moved by it. And it just, it makes me sad for them, but also it makes me happy to know that they are there and they're not going away and they will continue to tell their story until it gets through some thick skulls out there yeah that we need access to this life for some life-saving care um yeah so while uh most of the show in the back half is going to be about like all the bad things republicans do to block abortion access uh weirdly the first half is about a lot of the good things that republicans have done this uh this Weird. You know, it's it's there's just all kinds of emotions going on here. So we're going to be talking about, I think, uh, three bills, three kind of issues, I guess a couple more than three bills um, that I wanted to focus in on that I thought were some good stuff that had been going on that are mostly led by Republicans in the legislature that I think are some some good developments this session. Um, we're going to finish by talking about uh, some bad stuff because, you know, yeah, you, you got to keep it real. You got to keep it you got to keep it real yeah. with Frankfurt and yeah. Inset. It's so. not. It's not good out there. There's some good stuff. It's not good out there. Uh, it's like seventy thirty bad. It's Maybe like 80. ninety ten. Uh, is like, it ninety ten? It's like ninety five five. But that's okay. There is some. We're gonna we're gonna focus in on whatever percentage it is. Uh, that's that's good this week. Uh, so let's Fair. let's go ahead and get started by talking about some of these things. So, um, child care. Child care has been a major topic among Democrats, and and you know left of center individuals this legislative session and, and for the past couple. Um, and, and the reason why child care is such an important thing this year is because there is uh, a potential collapse of the industry coming 
because there have been a lot of pandemic era supports that the federal government were provi- was providing to child care centers um, that are disappearing. And uh, the way that the industry has gone and the way that, you know, has been able to support itself with these subsidies um, means that there will have to be some significant changes unless those subsidies can be replaced. And that could mean a lot of different things. So Kentucky Policy, the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy. No one knows what to call this group. Uh, Honestly. <laughs> they're awesome. But I could, you know, KY Policy, Kentucky Policy, they have been especially vocal on this issue. Um, they performed a survey that showed nearly 80% of the 770 respondents to their survey of child care centers said that without those pandemic uh, levels or pandemic supports, they, that they would have to raise tuition. And, and, and also one in four centers said that they were going to have to close. Um, I depend on child care. A lot of people across this state depend on child care. I don't want to pay higher tuition. Uh, it's really expensive. Um, it's already expensive. Yeah, for uh, it's it's it. You know, my mortgage is not that far away from what I pay for child care, and and having that number go up, uh, I don't want it to be more than my mortgage. I I don't think that that's that's great. Uh, and that's a that's the reality that people that depend on on child care face. Um, and and you know that 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 centers face and the economics of these centers are really difficult. And the, the ways that we um, have to take care of our, our children, if, if both parents are going to have to work to survive in this economy, um, that means that we're going to have to do something more to take care of our kids. And that means the government's going to have to support it. Uh, and, and that's just the reality of the situation. Um, Kentucky policy did a lot of really good work to shore that up, to show that in their survey. And then also, just kind of talking about the the tactical ways in which this is happening. So KY Policy reported that the federal government was providing $300 million annually in supports to Kentucky child care centers that were going to dry up after this year. So, you know, um, that that's bad. That's bad stuff. So so who what what was the plan? So Andy Bashir, of course, he he submits a budget request as the governor every year, and his budget requested 141 million dollars in child care funding um, for for this budget. Uh, and, and you know it was I felt like that was a pretty modest ask. You know he's got politics to worry about. I'm, I think he's like I, I hope they give us something. I'm going to put this number here. It's not enough, but it's something. And the House's budget came through with uh, $52 million in support, just about a third of what they asked for. That That's not enough. Uh, Allison's out here shaking her head uh, because she also knows it's it's not, not enough. enough. Yeah. Um, a, a potential rescue is on the way in the form of Danny Carroll, the senator from Western Kentucky. Um, he's also the only senator to vote against, or the only Republican senator to vote against SB 150. Um, so, you know, he's done some good stuff in the past. Um, and on Tuesday of this week, which is the, the, the 12th, um, he told of his proposal for $300 million, more than double what Andy Bashir proposed, $150 million per year in support for childcare through what he's calling his horizons act. We don't know much about the, the specifics of the legislation. He's just announced that he's putting this forward. Um, but that's, a really good plan and another republican legislator senator whitney westerfield tweeted his support quickly after that bill was announced by danny carroll um so that's a good thing good thing the republicans are doing so so uh we don't know what's in the legislation yet carroll's poised to reveal it soon but he does have the backing of folks like the chamber of commerce the kentucky youth assembly and a lot of these other kind of like moderate groups that work across the aisle uh, i think that you know places like 
KYA, like they, they're supported pretty heavily by Democrats, but they're also supported pretty heavily by Republicans, and they do a pretty good job of, of working these moderate issues into uh, getting some stuff that we need in the state. So they're all out there in support of this, and that means I think that um, some of the folks that really care about the progress in the state um, are, are realizing the importance of child care. I do think it's worth mentioning that, uh, you know, Danny Carroll is the CEO of a, a group that does uh, have a child care center attached to it. So he's intimately aware of the industry. I think that makes him more like knowledgeable about this and how important it is. Um, honestly, I don't know the prospect of this legislation. I, I certainly think it, it, it looks like it will fare better uh, than if a Democrat had supported a $300 million subsidy for child care. Like, that would be dead on arrival. I think Danny Carroll's is not dead on arrival. Is it going to be dead shortly after uh, arrival? I, I don't know. Uh, I think because Andy Bashir has supported child care centers in the past and said that child care is important. Um, Republicans can be petty, um, can be, are typically very petty, and it might just be because Andy Bashir likes it. We're just not going to do that. Even if it does make it out of the Senate, I don't know what kind of chance it has in the House, um, which has already, you know, done uh, child care funding at, you know, a tiny fraction of the amount that Danny Carroll has requested. So um, first good thing, uh, there is, uh, I think, a pretty good child care bill making its way through the legislature. So um, I don't know. What do you think about that, Allison? I think, um, first of all, that we should fully fund child care, point blank, period. Um, it's a shame that we don't do that um, as a country, number one, but number two, as a state. I mean, we, you and I both have a very good friend, Mara, who right at the end of the year was making the very important decision of do I run for office or not? And as she was making that decision, her child's child care center emailed the staff and the parents saying that they were closing that following Friday and gave them basically a week notice. And so she had this whole plan for running for office, which she still is, thankfully, because she's got a great support system and found access somewhere else part time. Not everybody has that you know, privilege, but that's a separate story. But that had that really put a pause in her plan because now she had no child care for her kid and was very open about it in the news. She called me on the brink of tears about it. And like, this is the reality that so many Kentuckians face in Louisville, in Lexington, in Prestonsburg, in Bowling Green, like you name it. And it's really like, for me, exciting to see some of our friends on the other side of the aisle recognizing this. Um, but at the same time, childcare is part of being truly pro-life and having this access for families is what makes a child, you know, grow. But once the baby's out of the womb, sometimes our friends forget what pro-life actually means. Yeah. And so this is just, it's exciting to see. I'm hope it goes forward. Um, I also want to note, I have not been on here since the governor won re-election. Oh, so <laughs> congratulations to Governor Andy Bashir and Lieutenant Governor Jacqueline Coleman, if you are listening to this. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hello, if you're listening also. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I would I, I agree with everything you said there, Allison. Um, I, I just don't think people who don't deal with the system recognize that, like, you know, there's a lot of people who need it who don't have access to it because of monetary concerns, because of yep. um, life situations or whatever. You know, even the families like mine who have access to it, who 
you know, can afford it, I guess. Like, it's still a, a huge item in my budget. It's so yeah. deeply inconvenient for so many different ways. The way that it's structured is difficult. The way that you have to pay for it. The, just the tenuous nature of it. That you your center can just up and close without giving you any notice. Um, you're, yeah. Sometimes, you're, you know, the, the, the pay is so low for some of the people that work in these situations that they're always looking for a different job. So, like, it's just it's just really, really hard. And the economics of making this work without support from the government, which is pretty unique to the United States, um, it is just so difficult. It is just so difficult. And and it is a spot where the, the government should step in. It's what it's the way it's done many other places. So, yeah, I agree. Um, it's good to have these additional supports. I certainly hope that the, the three hundred million dollars support are proposed by Danny Carroll makes makes it through. Me too. And I'm grateful that Senator Westerfield mm-hmm. has you know, openly come out and said that he supports it as well. Um, it is important to note that he is one of the fellows that are leaving the legislature this mm-hmm. year. So that has any sway behind why he did this. He's the, he's, the, he's the Jeff Flake of the Kentucky legislature. Now that he's leaving, he's like saying what he actually feels. And he's like, right, <laughs> I guess. But I am at the end of the day, very grateful that he has stepped up as well and is supporting uh, Danny Carroll's. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's and and I do think that this was the type of bill that Whitney Westerfield would have supported in the past. You mentioned like I agree. You, you know he he is extremely anti-abortion, which drives me crazy a lot of the time. But he is one of those people that does recognize that you have to be pro-life in a lot of different ways. I do think that yeah. that's true of him. Yeah. Um, okay, moving on to the next issue. Robert Stivers, uh, <laughs> an enemy, if ever there was one, the president of the Kentucky Senate. Uh, he he filed SB1, which, you know, we talk about this a lot. That's the top priority in the Senate. And he filed that on Tuesday. Most years since the GOP took control of the legislature, SB and HB1 have been like extremely divisive bills about labor issues or social issues, um, taking people's, you know, uh, like, you know, entitlements away or whatever. However, this year, this bill is, uh, you know, probably the best higher education system bill that we've seen filed in several years. Um, the, the bill would set up and fund um, a system that would fund research projects that were a collaboration between multiple universities within Kentucky. Um, back when I was in college, which is getting to be a long time ago, um, <laughs> the University of Kentucky, where I am a graduate, they had a mandate to become a top 20 research institution. Um, and I remember that the push to this and and the president and the administration of uk like asking for the funding that it would take to meet that mandate and it never really came close to reality we never funded uk in a way that made it into an elite university and and i really think that this is kind of the first major push to get kentucky universities back into research in quite a while most recently uh higher education plans have been like severe they've been more interested in like severely hamstringing smaller universities by setting up these like funding schemes uh that kind of uh if you talk to the people in these smaller universities and the regional universities they'll say that they kind of like tilt towards the larger uh institutions and this bill seems like a step away from that it seems to encourage partnerships between like you know uk and moorhead state or U of L and nku and and the thing that's kind of cool about a process like this is like a lot of these smaller universities have uh some sort of a thing that makes them special um, you know, 
Western Kentucky has a great journalism program or EKU has a great like fire and first responders program. And, you know, NKU, they have a great theater program, but I'm sure they have another thing that yeah, there could be research into theater. I don't know. Um, uh, Moorhead State has a really cool space program, you know, and and bringing that expertise, that special expertise that somebody in these regional universities have um, with the funding and laboratory space and whatever that the larger research institution might have at UK or UofL or something like that could really mean that we could do some research that makes a big difference um so this is something i think is good it's like sb1 is actually good that's kind of crazy robert stiver's bill I'm a, I'm a big fan so there you go um and in addition to SB1, uh, Senate President Stivers put forward a resolution uh, to study turning Hazard Community and Technical College into a four-year institution. Um, I think that seems like a great idea. Um, I think more public colleges, uh, more public support for pu higher education is a great uh, idea. Putting a new university in that part of the state, I think, would be a, a real benefit, a real boon for that part of the state. Um, there isn't really a four-year option down in that part of the state. You know, over on, in the eastern half of the state, you do have, like, Moorhead and northeastern Kentucky. You've got NKU up at the top, and, you know, you've got, like, Pikeville College, which, it, you know, it's not a public institution, but at least it's way out there in the far east. But there's nothing really south of that. And having something in Hazard um, would put something in Kentucky that, that students who don't want to travel very far could have access to. Um, you know, I'll just say like a lot of my family is from Ashland and it's a big benefit for people who don't want to travel too far to go to college to have Moorhead that's like an hour away. Um, they can stay at home. They can take care of their families. They can live there if they need to. And they can still go to class and make it so that they're not traveling like three, four hours a day to get to class. And that's really beneficial. And having a four year institution there in Hazard would be really important. And also this development has me thinking about uh, there was this, this story in Bloomberg in 2017 that I think about all the time that studied the relationship between small colleges and their towns and it talked about pikeville uh very specifically and it showed that like economic development when pikeville college went in really benefited pikeville so having a four-year institution even though um you know college graduates don't tend to stick around in kentucky like they like, like we hope they would um you know it is a benefit for the development of those communities and hazards a really cool special community um and anything we can do to help them um would be good so, so uh, Allison, what do you think? Uh, good stuff from from uh, Robert Stivers. What do you think? Or how do we feel about uh, Robert Stivers doing something good? It's weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will say, as someone who went to college in a small town, you know, I went to Hanover College in Hanover, Indiana, which is super, super small, but it's real. It's literally right next to Madison, Indiana, which is a pretty historic uh, city and town. I do agree that it does really improve economic development in the area. I mean, Hanover is a very rural southeastern Indiana community. And we were an hour from Louisville, an hour and a half from Indy, you know, an hour-ish, a little more at the Cincy. Like, you're close enough to these cities, but, like, when you need something at Walmart, you just go to Madison. And I completely agree that every area should have access to this four-year institution and not have to travel all the way to Moorhead State or Pikeville or any of those things. So this is a great, you know, resolution that he has introduced. And as someone, like I said, who went to a small school, I think I do see the benefits of the economic development side of it. It's just so really freaking weird that he's doing something good. It makes, <laughs> it makes me super nervous for what's to come. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's being nice to us so that he can really... He's, he's like setting us 
with something <laughs> like gonna forget when he does something yeah. so bad yeah. in like the what? next cause I think the bill filing deadline's tomorrow actually. Oh thank goodness. If I remember I think it's I think Josie told me it's on Valentine's Day and I was like, oh how lovely that we can just start surfing through all the crap that yeah. we're gonna get. All the shells uh, and whatnot. Yeah. Right. But I do think overall this is a good bill. Um I wonder if he feels pressure from the fact that voters don't like the nonsense that they do sometimes, especially around education. Um, I know there's a lot of higher ed edu- um, advocates out there that are doing a lot of good work to really advocate for higher ed students. And so I just want to shout them out. Um, but I, overall, I would give this bill like an odd A. But <laughs> odd A. <laughs> Uh, on a right on a curve here, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a huge curve right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, okay, the last good bill I wanted to talk about from Republicans is one that we've talked about before, and it's the Momnibus Bill HB10, and it had several small improvements for mothers in Kentucky, and it did. It passed out of the House Committee and could get a floor vote very soon. So we've talked about it before. So go listen to a previous show if you want to learn exactly what it does. But it does stuff like make insurance more attainable for people who are pregnant provides mental health services for mothers and makes telehealth easier to do during pregnancy so stuff like that other other kind of small changes it's an omnibus that's why they're calling it the momnibus so uh, it does a lot of different things uh, it does seem to be on track to pass at least the house uh, which means even if it doesn't pass this year it could have a movement to pass it maybe next year it's it's making progress the bill is making progress and i think that's great um there was a small scuffle about the bill and and i actually think that this episode is very emblematic of some stuff that Lindsay burke and, and, and we were talking about um, and that's that uh, you know this bill was written by and large by like more progressive people and they brought in some like uh, more moderate <laughs> legislators to push for it and they understood the importance of stuff like this but it very clearly was written by like more progressive people because it used gender inclusive language um, they're talking about like uh, people who are pregnant and uh, y- you know they're trying to be as like trans inclusive as possible and I guess they finally read the bill and they were like we're changing it to pregnant women, uh, which, uh, you know, whatever. Okay, fine. And, and Rachel Rourke's did, I, I, I commend her for this, but she did make sure to register a complaint uh, about the language becoming becoming worse on purpose. Uh, but, you know, the change went through, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, you got to pick your battles. It's a good bill. It's going to do some good stuff. Uh, and, you know, while it's stupid that they took out the gender-inclusive language, I, I'm, I'm glad that it seems on track, um, even though that scuffle was... Uh, emblematic of a, a larger problem in our legislature so um you, you like the momnibus allison uh, what do you think about this do you think it's going to pass this year i like it i know the aclu likes it too because they actually tweeted about it once it was passed out of committee so it's got their support i'm happy to see some bipartisan uh, um people up there you know agreeing with it but as we all know how the house of representative works in kentucky in the Senate, but then again, you know, Robert Stivers has filed a good bill, so maybe he's on a turn a new leaf. But I don't know. I just, unfortunately, I don't see it going anywhere in the actual House. I would love to be proved wrong. <laughs> like, yeah. please prove me wrong. But I just think that the fact that he even got out of committee is a pretty big deal. And I want to really shout out all the advocates and, like I said, the bipartisan legislators who I believe they were all women. Yeah. Who were in the, I remember, I can't think of like the full photo shoot that happened or press conference with it, but I believe it was all women. Um, and so it's a good, it's a good step forward. And like I said, I would love to be proved wrong. Yeah. And- <laughs> 
And, and I do think it's important to say that, you know, even if it doesn't make it to the floor this year, even if it dies after being passed out of committee, um, that isn't the end of it. You know, they come back right. every year uh, to do this. And um, sometimes it takes a couple times to get through this por- this part yeah. to, uh, to get to the floor, to get through one chamber or two chambers. So um, that, that's definitely something that might happen in the future. I uh, hope it makes it out this year. But if even if not, that's not the end of the story. Yeah, um, Speaker Osborne, if you're listening, you should let it bring up to a vote. Yeah, I don't think he's listening, but hi. Just uh, yeah. Gates. We do, we do have like an odd number of Republican legislators that I do know that listen. I, I don't know why, uh, but, you know, hey, guys. Uh, all right. So that was hey. that's the that's the end of the Republicans uh, can do good things section. And we're moving on to the uh, Republicans mostly. do. And we're moving on to the normal legislature now. <laughs> yeah. So we talked a few weeks ago about the voter ID bill, which would bar student IDs from being used as a primary form of identification and would also remove credit cards as a secondary form of identification. The bill did pass the Senate on a party line vote and is headed to the House. Um, we you know, pointed out previously that the bill is opposed by Michael Adams, the Secretary of State. That remains to be the case. Uh, we'll see if his opposition, opposition uh, helps stymie this bill in the House at all. Um, but also it's, you know, supported by Adrian Southworth, who, especially on the issues of voting, voting and elections, is... Um, crazy i think it's you can call her crazy uh not on everything maybe i don't know her personally but on that one uh definitely not um not following uh normal lines of logic that people can follow um allison i know that you wanted to talk a little bit about this tell us uh what you have to say um as you know the leader of an organization that is surrounded by young people especially college people. Um, this is a problem to me. And I've actually talked with young Republicans as well who feel the same way. Um, this is a problem. And first of all, there, there's so much I could talk about with this, but I just want these people to understand that in order to get your college ID, not only do you have to be enrolled in the school, but to get enrolled, you have to provide a social security number, number one. And number two, to get FAFSA, you have to have like social security number be identified by the government. And so you literally do all of this to get a student ID. So you are a real freaking person that should be able to use this form of ID to go vote. Number one, number two, I had to use a credit card to open Mara's bank account for her campaign. Cause I'm the treasurer. And so what is the difference between me quite literally opening a bank account to put money in compared to voting with, a credit card like they're both forms of id so i don't understand the difference there um it just really hurts young people you know getting an id is not something that a lot of people have when i went to school in dc i have friends from new york who don't have government ids because they don't drive anywhere because there's a subway system in new york that takes you everywhere and so they didn't even get their first id until they got to dc when they were becoming college age and wanted to start going to bars but like that's a it's a very common thing to not have an id when you turn 18 like a driver's license id and it's just something that i could go on and on forever on Uh, i'm grateful for the young republicans who i've talked to who are also against this bill um i'm also grateful that the secretary states against it as well for as many flaws as he has for other things that i don't agree with and i did not vote for the man I am appreciative of the fact that he recognizes that this is bad and will suppress the vote that is already low in Kentucky. We'll suppress it even more. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a really good point about people not always having IDs. I had one friend in college uh, that didn't drive, and uh, we would always like roll up to bars, and he would have his passport. Yeah, the yeah, that's what they like, did. Yeah. What the heck am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> yep, that's what so many of my friends in Washington yeah, did. From, your passport. Well, yeah. yeah, they just had passports. Yeah, yeah. And like, it's very common yeah. when you're in a city, like I said, like New York City, where you rely on public transportation to get yeah. you everywhere. Absolutely. Um, as has been expected since the start of the session, the GOP introduced a plan to study the breakup of Jefferson County Public Schools. In the House, the mo- most of the you know Louisville Republican Caucus, who's you know the same folks that sponsored HB five and want to make uh, Louisville elections par- nonpartisan, um, they filed HCR eighty one. And in the Senate, Lindsey Titchener, whose district includes Louisville, but she does not live in Louisville, uh, uh, along with uh, Michael Nemus, who I think lives in Bullitt County. He may live in I don't. Know, he may actually live in Louisville, so I don't want to say anything about him. Um, but along with Adrian Southworth, who definitely doesn't live in Louisville, and Matthew Deenan, who also definitely doesn't live in Louisville, they are the main sponsors of SCR 142. So these are concurrent resolutions um, that would set up a group to study the impacts of breaking up the district. Uh, I'll just get it done for you right away. It's a bad idea. Don't do it. Don't do it. Um, we'll ha- probably have somebody on in the next few weeks to talk more in detail about what that would mean to the students at JCPS and kind of the implications of what uh, this really stupid idea has for us. But um, as it is, uh, it seems likely that there will be some kind of study. Um, hopefully, um, we can be honest about what it means. Um, Allison, you're shaking your head with a really angry face. Uh, <laughs> I'll just say there is no equitable way to break up Jefferson County Public Schools. This city is designed on a segregated base. You cannot equally divide JCPS in an equitable way. You will have the West End, the South End, the East End, the Highlands, and all of that in the middle. It is, it's not possible. Yeah. And instead of fully funding the district and transportation and other things to make it successful, we are instead going to make it worse. And I'm willing to bet none of these people have even stepped in foot inside of a JCPS school. I saw the other day the governor do a ride around with a bus driver, and I challenge every legislator to go do that and then come back and tell me that they don't need to be fully funded. Yeah, so it's a you know, the economies of scale is something I keep coming back to on this issue. Um, You know, we JCPS pays a pretty high price for its administrators, um, but on a per pupil basis is actually among the lowest paid. It's among the lowest. Yeah. And that's Um, why when everybody got so mad with Dr. Polio getting that raise, I was like, when you look at him per per pupil. He is not making a lot of money. And, and that's economies of scale. You would, If you want to have a good urban school system, you have to pay somebody good money to do that. And if you have yeah. two urban school systems, you would then have to have two really highly paid um, yeah. administrators, um, which would mean that the tax base would be cut in half to pay for that person twice, in addition yep. to all of the extra administration, all of the extra transportation, which it's still difficult to get people around. Um, there's a lot of reasons – it's a bad idea. Not do it. Put me on the council. I'll tell you all about them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay, so that's that's that bill. Um, like I said, we may have somebody on in, in the near future to talk more about this one. Um, Marty Polio, if you hear it, come on. <laughs> uh, Marty Polio, hello. Um, 
the last thing I have to say this week uh, before we get to our interview with uh, Lindsey Burke, I want to just highlight this while we're talking about Republicans doing bad things. Joe Girth uh, of the Courier Journal, he wrote in his column this week about Jennifer Decker, who's a Republican representative from Shelby County. Um, she's the chief sponsor of HB9, which is the bill that se- severely curtails DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, education, and higher education, um, which has been you know making a lot of news. We've talked about it quite a bit. But she went to the Shelbyville area NAACP and said that her father was a slave. Jennifer Decker is white. Her dad uh, was uh, apparently quite poor, uh, lived in poverty, which I don't want to take anything away from that. But that does not make you a slave. That does not mean um, that someone else owned you um, or like said that they owned you. They that that's not the same thing. Um Joe Gertz said this in his column, but I think it uh, really, in a twisted kind of way, uh, shows the necessity of things like DEI. Maybe if Jennifer Decker had had good uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion education, she would have known not to say that her father was a slave. That, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So, um, pretty brutal stuff. Yeah, yeah. I just, you know... Like we said, 95.5 yeah, yeah. goes on in Frankfurt. But like, I don't even know where to start with that. Like, that's a whole box that needs to be unpacked. But like, come on. Yeah. Like, I have a huge problem with Republicans in Frankfurt just saying stuff with like no evidence to back it up between this, Adrian Southworth saying that illegal citizens voted in one of the most recent elections and Michael Adams being like, quite literally, no, they did not. <laughs> like, I'm just so over them just saying stuff and nothing happening to them. Like, this is ridiculous. And I'm just going to leave it at that. This yeah. white lady who thinks that her white father was a slave should probably go, like, read a book. Probably. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll leave it there. Uh, Allison. Thank you very much for coming back on. We'll have you on a couple more times as Jasmine's going to be absent a few times in the near future. So always a joy to have you. Thanks for coming on. Yes, and go cards. Go uh, cats. You know, maybe the cats are stinking right now, but my cards yeah, you, are on a little bit of a roll. UK plays tonight, <laughs> but uh, as of right now, UofL actually has a better record uh, in February than U- UK does. So um, there, there you go. Um, you know, they did play. And so we do know which team is, you know, better. But that's okay. Uh, anyways, <laughs> let's get to our interview with Lindsey Burke. Lindsey Burke is the House Representative in the 75th House District in Lexington. She has a background in social work and law and is serving in her first term as a state representative. This year, Representative Burke is the chief sponsor of several bills regarding access to abortion and has bravely shared her story of her abortion with the state. Lindsey Burke, welcome back to My Old Kentucky Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Um, I just want to state that Lindsay is still a young Dem. She is a former big young Dem in the organization. So she will always hold a special place in this young Dem's heart. So even though she just turned 40, she's still one of my young Dems. Dang, you just outed her like that. That is brutal. That is a party brutal so start fun. to the interview. It was everywhere. Her party looked so much fun. I was so jealous I couldn't go. Um, oh, thank you. I'm so proud to be 40. Um, you know, Life is not a, a promise thing for any of us. And mm-hmm. so the privilege of growing older is one that's not lost on me. And uh, it gives me a lot of enthusiasm and hope for the future. 
And it's also got me thinking about how to make uh, life better for the people who are coming behind me um, that aren't even old enough to be a young Dim yet. But you'll always be a young Dim in my heart. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, with Will, Robert just talked about with you being a state rep for the 75th district in Lexington. You know, you've been very open about your personal story about abortion this year. And do you mind telling our listeners who maybe haven't heard you speak so openly and passionately about it about, and what you had to do in order to follow medical best practices during your pregnancy? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I never thought when I became a legislator that this was going to be something that was so important for me to share, but, um, you know, this hadn't happened when I first ran for office. So as I was running for office, my husband and I were trying to conceive um, a child through in vitro fertilization. And we'd been seeing fertility doctors for years leading up to that. And so it's something we had been trying for and hoping for for a long time. And during the primary, I lost our first pregnancy um, and had a missed miscarriage, um, which means that my my baby stopped growing, but my body didn't know that I wasn't pregnant anymore. And, um, you know, in the middle of a campaign, there's no good time for that to happen to you. But in the middle of a campaign is definitely not a, a thing I would recommend for anyone um, to experience a profound grief like that when they're trying to do something really hard. Um, so you have three options, uh, medically speaking, when that happens. You can just do what they call expectant management, where you just kind of wait for your body to realize you're not pregnant. And then you'd have um, the sort of stereotypical miscarriage that you read about or see in movies, you know, where there's just a ghastly surprise and lots of blood. Um, and obviously that was not a first choice for me, um, given that, you know, you don't know when that's going to happen or how it's going to happen or anything like that. So I didn't want to be out knocking doors or giving a speech or anything and, you know, have that horrible experience. So then that left two options. And my doctor explained, um, both of them to me. He said that I could have, um, abortion medication um, that would cause me to have a miscarriage promptly um, and that that would be um, predictable in a way that the first option wasn't, but that it was still going to be um, dramatic and, um, you know, something that would be um, sad and hard to forget. Uh, my third option um, was to have a DNC, which um, is sort of treated popularly as the, the stereotypical abortion. Um, that's a procedure based in the hospital. The downside of that is that it is more invasive than taking the abortion medication. Um, the positives for me were that I knew when it would happen. I knew um, what to expect, and I knew... Um, that it was going to be over. And so that was a hard decision to make, but at the same time, having some certainty in the middle of heartache was very comforting um, to know that sort of when the nightmare would be over, so to speak. 
So that was my first experience um, that happened in the sort of mid spring um, of 2022. And by July, I was pregnant again. Um, this time, my husband and I transferred two um, embryos. So for those of you who aren't familiar with IVF, I want to give you a little bit of background. Um, typically, they will transfer one. That's the preferred thing to do. When once you get old enough and 38 was old enough, um, they will allow you to transfer more than one embryo. Um, they, before they transfer any embryos, they do something called grading. So these um, embryos had really good grades. Um, they looked normal. They were expected to take. And my husband and I were both up for what we thought was going to be like the fun risk of being twin parents. Um, what we did not prepare ourselves for was the unfun risk of having a very complicated pregnancy, which is what happened. So we had twin A and twin B, uh, both of them fertilized outside of my body. They implanted in my uterus. They started growing, um, but they did not grow equally or at the same speed sort of right from the beginning. So there were some concerns uh, from that very first appointment. And I'm a prayerful person. So, you know, I, I, that's all you really can do when it comes to these matters. So I prayed a lot. Um, the next couple appointments seemed better. You know, twin A actually caught up with twin B. They were measuring the same size. I'm like, oh, my God, thank you. This is actually okay. Everything is going to be all right. Um, but then around eight weeks, we had an ultrasound um, where we got the first inclination that something wasn't right. So they do measurements early in pregnancy um, on something called the natal cleft, or is that right? At any rate, they measure um, the back of the baby's neck. Um, and if it's really small, that's good. And if it's not really small, that's a reason to worry because this shows up in a lot of situations where the baby is not healthy. They'll have this big um, gap between their spine and the back of their neck. And that is a, a sort of a hallmark of genetic disorders or growth disorders or any number of problems. Um, because basically what it is, is it's edema, um, swelling, fluid that's built up that should have gone, if your body was functionally normally, it would have functioned and flowed through this baby. So we get this news that twin A has this really big growth on the back of his neck. And they're like, it's not a diagnosis. It's just a thing. You need to go see maternal fetal medicine, which is the high-risk pregnancy doctor. So we go see the high-risk pregnancy doctor. The very first appointment, um, they confirm um, that twin A has a series of fatal fetal anomalies. Um, the cystic hygroma, which is the, the name they use when it's a really big growth on the back of the baby, um, was just a symptom, but not actually the issue. Um, twin A had multiple issues, um, all of them very rare. One of his conditions involved his organs growing outside of his body. So his heart was outside of his body. His bladder was outside of his body. Um, 
and he had multiple bone issues where things weren't shaped the way they were supposed to be. His skull was not shaped correctly. He had no spine from about the, the shoulders down. Um, so sadly, the doctor said that day, your baby probably won't live to be born. And that's awful. And I'm sorry. The problem is not that the problem is what's going to happen to twin B. And so you have um, a very short amount of time to make a decision on how you plan to proceed with your pregnancy, because the window for you to do something to try and save baby B is going to close very quickly uh, in terms of any intervention you might want to do, you will not be able to do because it will become more dangerous than beneficial if you don't make a decision quickly. And I was like, I, I don't even know what you're saying to me right now. I had prepared myself for really bad news and what you're telling me is somehow worse. Cause I had like, I had understood that I might lose one of my babies, but what I'm hearing right now is that you're saying I might lose both of my babies. And she said, yes, I'm very sorry. Um, but that's the worst case scenario is that you could lose both of your babies. When the first one miscarries, the second one could pass. Um, or it could cause an, a very premature birth for baby B, in which case he might be permanently disabled um, as a result. Like there's nothing wrong with him now, but being born way too early um, could lead to him having permanent disabilities. So very best case scenario, you will have one permanently disabled child who can probably get supportive services and be okay because he's blind or deaf or both. And those things are able to be overcome. And then you might have, one permanently disabled child who will probably die at the very latest at six months old after a lifetime of medical interventions. And that is your sort of best case scenario if you do nothing. If you choose to act, we can terminate the life of twin A and we can hopefully spare any suffering or issues for twin B. And you have about one week to decide because I need to get you into a clinic out of state because there's no way in Kentucky, nowhere in Kentucky that um, is capable of performing the procedure that you need. So all of a sudden, um, quite out of the blue, I determined I needed to become a medical expert in these really strange and uncommon um, abnormalities and that's what I did. I, I reached out to Cincinnati Children's Hospital. I learned everything I could about um, the issues that Twin A had to determine if there was any way for us to give him a life that was not full of suffering. Um, you know, if he had been a singleton, we actually may have been able to do surgeries in utero to repair some of his issues. But at the end of the day, he was going to be born without a spine. And I just couldn't imagine a happy and healthy life for him, even a short, happy and healthy life. And so here I am 
um, just trying to figure out how to redeem what feels like the worst thing that could ever happen. Um, so very long story short, uh, my husband and I decided together with the council of family and friends and, you know, our minister, there was a lot of angry screaming at God. I mean, you know, just the, the whole nine yards of grief and it had to be done so quickly. Um, then we made our appointments through our doctor. We went out of state and um, did some testing and then ultimately terminated twin A. And it's not something I would wish on any person ever to have to have that experience, but it made me realize this is not something that ought to be legislated. These are the kinds of decisions that families need to make while they cry and scream at God and hold each other and wish they didn't have to make those decisions. And they should be able to make them privately and without the intervention of the government. Um, it's a shame that you know, frankly, it's a shame that I even feel like I need to talk about it. But the fact of the matter is so many people have stories like this and they have experienced trauma and medical trauma that they have kept private out of self-protection, out of fear, out of grief, out of all sorts of different reasons. But when those stories aren't told, we have a, a populace who will then accept the other side's story, which is that abortion is all about teenagers who make bad choices, and then they make more bad choices to try and make up for them their embarrassment. And I'm here today to try and set that record straight, that there are, are a myriad of reasons that someone might need access to abortion or reproductive care. And in Kentucky, we don't have the access we need. And until we do, I'm just going to keep telling my story over and over and over again so that one by one, people can realize it's not all black and white and decisions have to be made sometimes that are heart wrenching and that there's just really no room for the government in that decision-making. Yeah. Um, it's a, uh... Welcome to the worst club in the world. Uh, you know, uh, this happens to so many people. There's two people on this show that have stories like this. And, you know, it's just, it's such a crazy experience listening to anybody else tell these kinds of stories whenever I'm just starting to, like, compare and contrast, uh, you know, my experience with yours. And, uh, you know, there's there's just so much that's the same. You know, you learn all these all these acronyms and they mfm ivf iui like all these things and all what do all these things mean and uh you know then you know you you get into a situation where you have to make a decision like this and then with us you know it was during the bevin administration and and roe was still in effect and i was really worried that we were going to get caught in between the time before after a bill had been signed but before an injunction was in place during the roe versus wade uh um, era and you know it was absolutely uh, our MFM physician uh, was covering for somebody and she was there from Texas and 
the one of the first things she said to us was like, I'm not sure what advice I can give you because I'm not sure of the legal situation in your state. Uh, and, and it's kind of like, what's the medical thing that you want us to do? Like, I don't care what the legal situation is in the state. What's the best decision? She's like that. I don't know. I can't talk about this at home. Right. So it's. It is. Uh, it is not an uncommon situation. It is not an uncommon story. Uh, it is. I, it, it, unless you've gone through it, it's hard to explain the emotions. But hopefully, by hearing enough of these stories, you can at least get a glimpse of it. And I really appreciate you for being so open and willing um, to to share these stories. Uh, I know how hard it is. Um, you know. So. So thank you for that. You, of course, you. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you, of course, are in a different position uh, than most people who go through this because you are a member of the legislature. And um, while, you know, you're, the amount of power that you have is constricted by the minority status of your caucus, you, <laughs> you, do, uh, you do have the ability to sponsor legislation. And that's one of the things you've been doing this year. And um, I know of three bills. They all have fun names, uh, the North Star, the Hands Bill, and the Shield Bill um, that, you, that you are uh, supporting and that you are sponsoring this year. So can you tell us a little bit about those and what they would do to, to help Kentuckians gain access to this very important procedure? Absolutely, Robert. So the North Star Bill, um, so coined by ACLU, I got to give them the credit for that. Um, that's House Bill 428. What House Bill 428 does is it restores access to reproductive and abortion care in Kentucky. It's essentially cutting back on all the regulations and laws that were put in place over the last um, eight years or so. Uh, and taking us back to when Roe was good law. Um, so it is not, um, it's not perfect access, because uh, I think a lot of advocates would let you know that even under Roe, Kentucky struggled with access, uh, but it is 150% better than what we have right now. So um, the North Star Bill is not going to move. Um, there is no <clears throat> will among the Republicans to entertain any kind of bill like that. But it's important um, as a, a signal to other people who care about reprodu reproductive justice um, that Kentucky is not willing to settle for um, just the tiniest changes. So in addition to the North Star Bill, I filed House Bill 429. That's the SHIELD Bill. Uh, the S.H.I.E.L.D. bill is, I think, pretty unique in that it's really derived out of the issues um, that are unique to Kentucky, specifically with former Attorney General Daniel Cameron's attempts to grab at the private medical records of Kentuckians who went out of state to receive abortion care. Um, you know, he signed on to that letter of other attorney generals. It became a major issue in the governor's race as to whether or not he would continue to support policies like that. And then also in the AG's race as to whether Coleman would um, sort of carry the torch that um, Cameron had been carrying. I, I came to understand that in his last days and hours as the attorney general of Kentucky, um, that Daniel Cameron was actually legis not legislating. He was um, fighting in 
court about trying to get access to someone's medical records. And it's a sealed case. And we don't know exactly what kind of medical records he was going for. We don't know if it was abortion or trans health care. Um, but he was actively trying to do that as he was walking out the door. Um, so we know that even though there have been promises made, the world of politics is filled with broken promises. So I personally don't want to rest my safety or my doctor's safety on believing somebody's campaign promises. So the shield bill simply codifies existing protections in many ways so that no one in Kentucky can go pursue the medical records of another person for the purpose of prosecuting or harassing them. It also creates a right of action. So if uh, if someone were to go attempt to get my medical records from another state to um, prosecute or harass me, I now have a civil right of action to sue them um, for m- money damages for that harassment and invasion of privacy. And it even goes a f- step further to waive sovereign immunity. So typically, if the state does something bad to you, you can't sue them uh, because they have sovereign immunity. And so it's really hard to to get justice from the state doing something to you. So we waived sovereign immunity so that you could in fact sue the state for money if they did this. Uh, Likelihood of this bill moving also pretty low, although higher than 428. So 429 is a little bit more palatable um, to the majority. Then we've got House Bill 430 and that's the hands bill. Uh, The HANS bill is about improving quality of life and reducing maternal mortality for people who do have babies. So the HANS program is a Medicaid program. People come to your home if you choose to have them come, and they check in on you after you've had a baby. They may help you with um, figuring out the best sleep practices. They may help you with diapering or a diaper rash. They might might help you with your baby having reflux. You know, there's so many things that people need support for when they have a baby. The HANDS program provides that support in home. It was shocking to me to learn that the HANDS program didn't have any information that they were providing to recipients about postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. Because that's one of the most common things that happens to new parents is after all the joy and buildup of having the baby, the shocking realization that you're home by yourself with a delicate and needy and, I mean, let's face it, honestly, sometimes kind of draining um, little being who can't tell you. (laughs) They cry all the time and they never sleep and they always smell like poop and they throw up on your clothes as soon as you change. It's a lot, even on a good day. And it is completely normal for people to have beyond the baby blues. And for some reason, our Medicaid program just was failing to mention that to moms. And when we fail to recognize maternal mental health, that's a major indicator for the possibility of a lot of things, maternal mortality, like suicide. I mean, I hate to use the S word, but like, that's real. And then you think about um, the dire state of Um, children's well-being in Kentucky, abuse and neglect. Well, if you can't handle it, you might check out at a time when you really didn't need to check out. 
So we can improve outcomes for moms and for babies just by providing information about postpartum depression and anxiety through the HANDS program. Um, I am holding out hope on this bill. Um, I've had some discussions with Kim Mosier, who's the chair of the um, health committee and has worked in um, nursing for babies. I mean, she's about as sympathetic uh, a leader of that committee as could be. And I don't know if we'll get to committee or not, um, but she has been very diplomatic and receptive in me talking to her. And so um, for that, I'm incredibly grateful. And I do think that citizen advocacy would make a difference on this one. So 430, if you had to choose one bill to champion um, as a citizen, I hope it would be 430 because it has the ability to impact the most families um, and it has the greatest likelihood of success. Yeah, I, um, so two things. One, my work, my full-time job, the thing that actually pays my bills, has a HANDS program. And so I'm very familiar with 430 and all the work that HANDS does. And it's a very, very, very good program that it does need improvements in this bill. And I'm very grateful that you and Representative Mosier are working together to get this passed. But in the second part is, thank God Daniel Cameron lost. And I'll just leave it at that. But my question for you is, uh, the vast majority of the Kentucky legislature is opposed to abortion access, even after two rounds of voting against limiting abortion access. Um, and changing their minds on this issue seems like a long shot at best. But can you tell us about building a movement for better access to abortion in Kentucky and what it will take to actually get these bills to pass at some point in the future? Absolutely, Allison. Well, you are involved in some of the, the most essential work to making this long-term plan come to fruition. The way that we're going to change uh, the narrative in Kentucky is by mobilizing and activating young people and people who are typically left out or feel left out of the political spaces. Um, Kentuckians spoke so loudly and clearly when they voted no on two um, but the problem is that we've had trouble translating that into sort of a sustained action. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of great ways that people who care about reproductive justice can get involved, whether it's through um, the reproductive rights arm of ACLU, through Planned Parenthood Action Alliance, through um, Kentuckians for Reproductive Freedom, through there's Sister Song. Um, which focuses on the experience of women of color. Um, there are probably five or six more excellent organizations that I haven't named um, that are developing those grassroots leaders, people who are brave enough to tell their stories, to change the hearts and minds of people one at a time. Um, and that's going to be essential. But then we're also going to have to step up at the ballot box and not only put our names on the ballot to run for office, and stick our necks out when we do and say, I am a pro-choice candidate. I believe in access to reproductive justice. I believe that Kentucky doesn't have enough OBGYNs and we ought to be trying to make it so that they want to work here. And then to go vote for people like that. Um, we cannot be silent on this issue and expect any kind of change. And that's hard because the culture around reproductive 
justice, reproductive freedom, abortion. It's like you don't say the A word. Mm -hmm. Ooh, you sure don't say the A word. And yep. as long as that's the case, um, we're going to be stuck with none of the A word. And the A word will just be the A word. So we have to be bold enough and um, committed enough to do the work to get people on the ballot, to vote people into these offices, because that's how we're going to get this change. We're not going to change the hearts and minds of, um, you know, the Nancy Tates of the world. Yeah. Those, those minds are pretty fixed and that's okay. You can have your ideology. Just don't force it on me and don't leave my family in the midst of grief because you have a feeling about it. Yep. Um, yeah. The, uh, I, I will say that I think that attitudes around abortion and, and elections, uh, especially on uh, the Democratic side, have changed like really substantially in the past like three or four years, um, even before the fall of Roe. Like, I mean, I even think like when Andy Bashir was very adamant about his pro-choice stance when he ran the first time, um, which was kind of unique. And his his father was very supportive of abortion rights, but really never talked about it very much. And even when he uh like a couple like during the campaign last year he was like if i was running now i'd talk about it all the time so uh you know i do think that that's changed a lot and i would say like of all the organizations they're all amazing organizations that you've listed i would also uh you know i'll just leave it here but i would say like the democratic party is another one that's like highly committed to abortion rights and you should get involved in that too um the we what the great the SEC member you are robert <laughs> great uh, SEC member yeah yeah uh I, just in terms of the legislature, I just want to kind of ask you this question as you're working so hard on these bills and telling this incredibly personal, difficult story uh, over and over again to, you know, what's likely going to be little to no result. I mean, just to be honest, uh, you know, we have seen other people in the legislature, other uh, young Democrats in the legislature um, decide to hang it up this year. Uh, some of them are running for a different office and some are just leaving politics altogether. Uh, and a lot of cited the inability to move legislation or to make much of a difference uh, as a minority legislator as one of the reasons. Um, I, I saw, you know, Rachel Works is big on, on TikTok and, and, and she had, uh, a, a, you know, what do you call them? A TikTok? I guess it's just a TikTok. A yeah, whatever you call them. Uh, th this week where she talked about like making a bill better. And, and I was like, wow, that was really cool. TikTok. And then afterwards, I was like, man. That was such a small change that she worked so hard to do. And I can kind of understand the perspective of somebody like Rachel Roberts who's just like, this just isn't worth it anymore. Um, but you're yeah. not in that boat. You're deciding to run for re-election. This is still worth it for you. Tell us about, you know, making that decision, deciding to file again this time, and what makes it worth it to you? Well, so I think part of the reason I'm willing to do this again is because my background has always been in one-on-one -on -one type service. As a social worker, I worked with individuals. As an attorney, I worked with individuals. And so I do find meaning in making very small incremental changes. Um, I hoped that coming to the legislature would mean that I was gonna be able to make some bigger changes uh, and that that would happen sooner. That has just not come to fruition. And I know that I'm not alone and I take some solace in um, seeing my other fellow Democrats um, experience frustration with that. You know, you mentioned um, Rachel Rourke's TikTok and um, I think that's 
that's the name of the game right now is how do we take bad bills and make them incrementally better? So with several of the bills that have moved this session, I filed uh, floor amendments, friendly floor amendments and some unfriendly um, with house bill five. I filed a floor amendment to eliminate um, all of the provisions relating to homelessness, because to me, homelessness really has no place in a criminal justice bill. That bill didn't have a place anywhere, but homelessness really didn't need to be in there. Um, that floor amendment was um, resoundingly shouted down uh, by the Republicans. And I had two friendly floor amendments on other bills that were moving. So Representative Dietz had a bill about division of assets when you get divorced And if you are guilty of committing a crime against your spouse in the last five years before you're getting divorced, that that should be taken into account when your assets are divided. And I said to her in committee meeting, you know, most of the time domestic violence erupts after the divorce is filed. Like it's been building and then you get this critical incident and then it's really bad. So what about what happens after you file for divorce? Could that count too? And she said, oh my gosh, I'm kind of embarrassed. I didn't think about that. So she said yes to my friendly floor amendment. And then the wheels of politics ground the way they tend to grind. And all of a sudden, my friendly floor amendment was wrapped into a new floor amendment filed by her. So I did feel better, but with absolutely no credit. (laughs) So... I guess that's still good. I'm glad that we're going to defend people who are um, the victims of crime by their spouse. So like still glad I did it, even though that didn't turn out the way I expected it to. We will give you credit. Here's say I give you credit. Thanks. And then I had another friendly floor amendment for a Jason Nemus bill that I really thought, I mean, it went through committee. It had been on the orders of the day a couple of times and then it's just disappeared. Like, I'm not sure what they're doing with that bill maybe redrafting it so that he can take credit for my idea. I don't really know. Um, But that that's the way politics is going in Frankfurt these days. And so being able to be satisfied with very little improvements is key. Number one, to being able to keep doing this job. And that is not just in terms of improving legislation, but I'll give you an example. I got an email um, last week from a man in Katy's, Kentucky. And he told me that his whole life, it had been very obvious to him that there was only one moral high ground when it came to pro-life and pro-choice. And that was to be pro-life, that he had never had any reason to question um, that that was the right answer. And that when he heard my story, for the first time in his life, he realized that there was some gray zone there. And he felt uncomfortable with how allied he had been to the pro-life movement. And that, I I tell you, I get a lot of people who are already on my team saying, yay, 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 to read that email and know that somewhere in a rural part of Kentucky, somebody was grappling with something that wasn't on their radar before because I was able to share my story, that really made a difference to me. And so while I would love to see my ban on income discrimination bill 
make it across the finish line and have a statewide ban on income discrimination in housing. I would love to see my bill about um, providing care for first responders who have PTSD. So to give them workers comp so they don't go out and kill somebody because they're really triggered by their job. Um, I would love to see that happen. I would love for literally any one of my bills to make it across the finish line. But in order to keep doing this job, I have to look for the little glimmers and the little places I can make a difference and be willing to keep doing that, even though it's absolutely exhausting to be browbeat every day and have your good ideas snatched away um, to get no, no credit whatsoever. But we're going to keep doing that because Kentucky needs better policy. And we don't get better policy if we hang it up. I know that everybody deserves to come to a point where they say, I've had enough, please, no more. (laughs) I would like to be excused now. Um, So I don't begrudge my colleagues for finding other ways to serve or other ways to live their life. Um, That being said, I'm going to keep fighting this fight as long as I can. Um, And I am looking at all the ways that I could make a bigger impact. So in that, that's how I'm approaching current legislation, looking at finding Republicans to take my bills and put their names on them instead of my name. Um, Anything I can do to make an impact, telling my story, doing interviews. um, And then ultimately also considering, are there other roles where I can have a bigger impact? And, you know, I don't, have any shade for Josie Raymond um, for going to Metro Council because she's going to be a heck of a Metro Council person and really get to lead some awesome things in Louisville. Um, So maybe at some point there will be a pivot for me too, but right now that that is not uh, the plan and the plan is to stay in this role as long as I am of service and as long as I can make even a little bit of difference. Well, I'm grateful for all the work that you're doing, and I will give you all the credit any day, any time that you need it. Do not let them take your star power from you. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So with all that that you just poured out to us, if I lived in the 75th district or not, but still wanted to help your campaign, how can I get more connected to it? Or if I wanted to get more connected to the movement to expand abortion access in Kentucky, what would you tell me to do? Well, absolutely. So um, I have the incredible privilege of being unopposed, um, which is a really great place for me to be uh, in terms of thinking about how this next year is going to go. That being said, that means my whole focus is not going to be on myself, but on helping other Democrats to be elected. Uh, We need to build our bench. We don't need any vacancies. We need more than 20 in the General Assembly in the House. And so I'm going to be putting all of my chips down to try and help other people um, succeed in their races. So you can join me and get out the vote um, opportunities. There will be plenty of those. I'm going to be um, knocking for a lot of different candidates, and I would invite you to join me. I'll be posting all over my Facebook and social media when those things are happening and leading up um, to that, I think that everybody who cares about access to reproductive justice 
um, they need to find a way to get involved um, now, whether it's through the Reproductive Freedom Project of ACLU, um, through Planned Parenthood, one of the many other groups that I listed. There are ways to be involved online. You can be involved in person. Um, they're putting together a lot of really awesome storytelling opportunities. And um, whether it's your voice, your story, your dollars, um, your support for other people, all of those things are needed in this movement. Um, but the thing I'm really excited about is I believe that this movement is really going to change the face of Kentucky politics. And if we're successful at changing the face of Kentucky politics and rebuilding the Kentucky Democratic Party, then we're going to change the national landscape too. It It is not only local and statewide, but national change that we are capable from, and it's going to grow from here. And we can and we will do it. Um, but it's just a matter of every person who cares taking the time to get involved in whatever way is meaningful to them. And so we all need to find our place in this group because this group is going to change the world. All right. Awesome. Great stuff. Thank you, Lindsey Burke, so much for coming on, sharing your story, telling us what you're doing in the legislature and answering all of our questions. We really appreciate you being on today. Thank you all so much. Yeah. All right. That's the show. You guys can find us at my old KY pod on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, etc. cetera. Uh, you can um, find us, our podcast on the podcasting app of your choice. We have a uh, newsletter that comes out sporadically at best at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And you can, uh, you know, join our Patreon. Give us as little as a dollar a month if you like the show. Um, that really helps us out in terms of hosting fees and uh, other incidental expenses that come up, like the fact that I dropped my microphone on the ground a couple weeks ago and had to buy a new one. So anyways, uh, thank you guys so much, and we will see you next week.